welcome to Unbroken. I'm Alexandra Amore. I'm an author, a coach, and a lifelong explorer of what it means to be human. This is the podcast where my guests and I explore the inside-out nature of life and the positive effect this can have on every aspect of our lives, including letting go of unwanted habits. You'll find episode show notes, transcriptions, your complimentary video series, and lots more at unbrokenpodcast.com. And now, here's the show. Joe Bailey, welcome to Unbroken. Thank you. What a great title. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I was so pleased when I thought of that. It was, yeah, thank you. So um, it's so great to have you here today, Joe. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, how you got involved with the three principles, that kind of stuff. Sure. Uh, and thanks for having me on your My show, pleasure. Alexandra. Yeah. Um, so a little bit of background. I'm, um, I, I guess to go way back, I kind of discovered when I was 16 that um, when I was an exchange student in Guatemala, uh, I had the opportunity. My aunt was a Catholic nun working in Central America and with the poor and involved in lots of social justice issues. And so I lived there for a summer and it kind of opened me up to my vocation, really, uh, to want to help people, you know, alleviate suffering in the world. And being raised Catholic uh, after high school, then I went in the seminary thinking I'd be a priest and um, had some amazing experiences for that one year I was in the seminary. I uh, got to work with Martin Luther King's organization and my prefect, the kind of counselor that uh, for our unit was one of Martin Luther King's best friends. So we got to mm. learn a lot about all of that. And that was a big influence in my life. But it led to me uh, leaving the seminary after a year and deciding to continue my vocation by helping people. So I became a clinical psychologist, went to grad school and all that. And uh, the more I got into psychology, the more I thought, you know, gee, is this the right fit for me? Because there was no spirituality in psychology. It was very agnostic, very. Um, um, and so I did yoga and meditated and do all did all these other things because I always felt that was part of the whole person was to help people, not just with their mind, but their whole essence or spiritual nature and but that wasn't to really to be found in psychology until I met Sidney Banks <laughs> about 10 years later from the beginning of grad school till I was about 32 I met Sid at the <clears throat> recommendation of Keith Blevins Dr. Keith Blevins who was my best friend in grad school and actually he urged me to listen to Sid tapes over the years and I just thought, oh, you know, I was kind of cynical at that point. Every There were so many trips going on in psychology that it was just another fad and this fad and that fad. And I was kind of um, tired of that. So I just was not very open until one day uh, Sid was going to speak in Miami at the University of Miami Medical School. And Keith invited me and his wife, Alda, also said, by the way, my best friend, Michael, she is coming too, and we'd love for you to meet. And I was available. And so I thought, oh, okay, well, you know, that'll be fun. And uh, so I went to Miami, and uh, that first day I met 
my wife, Michael, so she's a woman, but she has a man's name because she was born on the feast of St. Michael, the archangel. <laughs> they thought she was going to be a boy, <laughs> but I fell in love with her at first sight. And four hours later, I met Sydney Banks. What a day. It <laughs> was the stars aligned or something. <laughs> and so, but when I heard Sid, uh, I had kind of a, a, a mixed reaction. You know, part of me was just curious because I'd heard so much about him, but he was unlike any person I had ever met. And when he spoke, everything he said was felt absolutely true. My truth meter went, yep. Mm. But my brain went, <laughs> because it went against everything I had been learned, learning in psychology and family therapy and all these people that I studied with was all about going back in the past and healing from past trauma, reliving emotions, getting in touch with your feelings, um, healing, forgiving. It was a very long, arduous therapeutic process. And my clients uh, would stay in therapy for years. So it was a good economic model. You didn't have to have <laughs> a lot of people <laughs> to make a living. But people never really got well. They just coped better. But they also started to identify with their labels, their diagnoses, and start to think of themselves as an alcoholic, as a person with depression, as a person with an anxiety disorder. And so it kept a, it put a cap on their full transformation or their ability to be free of the past, free of their symptoms. And what Sid promised was um, from, for me as a spiritual psychological person, it was like uh, it, it transcended the, the dichotomy between spirituality and psychology. And it showed that in the root of the word psychology is psyche, which in the Greek means mind, soul, or spirit. And so Sid really, for me, what's revolutionary about Sid's um, experience and his psycholo the psychology of three principles psychology is, um, for me, the hope that psychology become, can become a true science that includes this primary dimension of human beings that is essentially spiritual or formless. Mm-hmm which is what mind and the principles are, a formless energy that we're all part of. So my work, a lot of my work was involved in prevention, and, and uh, I was the director of prevention for the state of Texas for addiction uh, when I was 26, and I had no idea what I was doing and had no idea how to prevent alcoholism, but I got paid to do it, so I did it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and a lot of my work uh, accidentally got me into the alcoholism and addiction field just because I was assigned to it when I worked at the mental health center. And nobody knew about alcoholism, and, including me, but I was assigned to be the head of the alcoholism and drug addiction program. So um, when I heard Sid, 
I realized that this would transform the addiction field and the field of psychotherapy because it, it really helped people not just cope or identify with their habits, but to identify with their innate resilience or their innate health and to let that blossom and grow and evolve through a deepening understanding of the principles of how we create our day-to-day, moment-by-moment experience through mind, thought, and consciousness. So that, that was the beginning of, to me, my real career began when I met Sid Banks because mm-hmm. I finally had a way to actually help people. But at first, I didn't know how to do it because there's no techniques. There's no... Sid wasn't a psychologist. He didn't know about my world that much, um, although he had this incredible realization. And so when I went back to my practice after hearing Sid, I was clueless, how the heck do you do this? But I would just share a little bit about my own realizations I was having just as a human being. And I just kind of toss those out and the clients would go, wow, why didn't you tell me that before? That is so helpful. And I say, what did I say? Yeah. (laughs) And so I just kind of ooched my way along in the beginning because I didn't have a language for it. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just flying by the seat of my pants. And yet my clients were not only getting over their symptoms, they were achieving mental health, true love in their marriages. They were healing from the past. It was, and, and so pretty soon my clients quit coming because they got better, which was not a good economic model. <laughs> but it was great as far as satisfaction as a therapist. But then they would tell their friends, and pretty soon my practice grew so much, I had to train other people in the principles. And Chris Heath and I started what was called the Minneapolis Institute of Mental Health, um, which was a licensed treatment center for outpatient mental health and addictions. And for 10 years, um, Chris left and went to Hawaii about halfway through that, but I ran that for about 10 years. We treated thousands and thousands of patients and helped so many people and did research. And uh, it was an amazing um, experience, but it created a real ripple effect in the community because everybody wanted to go to that clinic. Mm. Not everybody, but a lot of people, and it was a big threat. So that's what happens when you have a paradigm shift. It, It threatens the the status quo. And so yeah. it's an interesting, anyway, that's kind of the backdrop or how I met Sid and began my journey with the principles. Yeah. It's such a fascinating story. And I love hearing about the dovetailing of your own interest in spirituality and your desire to help people and how those things, those two things came together uh, when you met Sid. And it made me think, do you, like it, it always surprises me that this understanding isn't more widely known, you know, especially in the world of psychology. And do you think it it's that element of spirituality that gets somehow? Well, it's kind of, it's, I, I don't know really why, to be honest, Alexandra. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have thought by now 
although in some ways it has exploded all over the world you know it's in all of Sid's books and tapes and you know there are practitioners uh, and communities of three principles in Iceland and Italy and France and Spain and Germany and um, the United States and you know the United Kingdom and Ireland and uh, Asian countries it's kind of all over my books are in uh, 68 countries and 26 languages so I know it's getting out there but the field of psychology it's all evidence-based treatment modalities and but the field is still growing into recognizing thought as the primary focus of therapy in the cognitive revolution in psychology cognitive behavioral therapy CBT mm -hmm. uh, dialectical behavioral therapy they both uh, and then mindfulness-based treatment MBRI uh, mindfulness-based treatment modalities are really exploding um, and so psychology is kind of evolving because of this is what people want. They want a deeper, more spiritual psychology. And so they're kind of combining Eastern thought, mindfulness practices, but they've done a lot of good research on that. And so they show the results. We, in the three principles, haven't done such a great job of, of documenting this in terms of getting into recognized journals and, and all that. Some of that's happened, um, but not enough to create a critical mass. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is that it's, it's kind of a, a threat to uh, a lot of people who have I, created their practices from uh, a school of thought, and then to introduce something that makes that obsolete is a threat to their identity and to their practice so mm -hmm. but anytime you find anything really true that comes into the world it's always fought that's how you know it's really true because it's really threatening to the way we collectively perceive reality mm -hmm. um, and this isn't an intellectual model it's not something you can figure out analytically it's something that has to impact you and when you change from within you see the world differently it's not a, a technique you do mm -hmm. current psychology is all based on techniques mm -hmm. doings and this is based on raising the level of consciousness through insight and understanding of how we're creating a reality moment by moment so but like in the addiction field uh, i've done a lot of work with treatment centers, training their whole staffs. I've done a lot of uh, work in healthcare. I've worked with many hospital systems. University of Minnesota helped uh, create a program called the Inner Life of Healers. Mm -hmm. And we worked with physicians and nurses and allied health professionals to teach burnout prevention and resilience. And then I also worked for eight years at Mayo Clinic, training their physicians and leaders in the principles um, because it lowered burnout dramatically. So um, it's kind of gone out more in the business world, the healthcare mm -hmm. world. Psychology is like the holdout in psychiatry. Mm -hmm. it's, it's threatening to the 
the existing paradigm that is based primarily on biology and the past mm-hmm. instead of a spiritual essence that's already mentally healthy. It's already resilient. And so it it kind of puts you out of business in a way, but not really. It, it, no, wouldn't, yeah. it would change it. But anyway, that's probably a long answer to a short question. <laughs> no, I, I'm really fascinated by this subject. So, you know, thank you for sharing that with us. And speaking of resilience, you're um, your most recent book is called Thriving in the Eye of the Hurricane. So I'd love to talk about that a little bit today. Um, tell us about that metaphor, the eye of the hurricane, and why it matters. Um, well, I don't know if you have hurricanes in British not on Not on Vancouver Island, no. <laughs> <laughs> but in the United States, we have a lot of hurricanes, especially on the coast of Florida and Panhandle in that area. And uh, so hurricanes are often on the news, but they're a very powerful storm. The winds on the outside of a hurricane are like 274 miles per hour. So when a hurricane comes, it it devastates, decimates everything. Nothing can withstand that. Mm -hmm. But it also is this torrential rain, and it's, it's just a very destructive force. But climatologists who study hurricanes fly airplanes in the middle of the hurricane in what's called the eye because it once you break through the wall of the hurricane it's totally quiet in the in the center of it and they call it the eye of the hurricane birds fly around in there you know it's it's very and most of the hurricane it's like 110 miles across is the eye it's just the outer perimeter that's Mm. destructive Mm. it's kind of like the ego (laughs) versus the true self Mm. the ego is kind of what creates all the damage (laughs) (laughs) Uh, our our thoughts and but our wisdom which is at the eye is what is resilient what is where we get insight healing transformation so to me it was a perfect metaphor for not only the climate change you know because i talk a lot to climate scientists and about this because they get burned out a lot too mm-hmm. and climate af- activists but it's the perfect metaphor because um in the in the eye of us as human beings our innate mental health is this source of ability to bounce back from whatever um an ability to uh, think creatively under pressure in a business. Uh, I've done a lot of work with police and first responders, military people who are you know on the front lines, how to stay calm in that crisis, in that moment where your life is truly threatened. And oftentimes in the news, you'll see interviews with people who are in a hurricane or a tornado or a flood or a, a bombing uh, or in nowadays uh, uh, a massive gun shooting, you know, with AK-47s in, in our crazy country we have here, um, and how someone will become a hero in the middle of that and just respond and save lots of lives. And afterwards, they're interviewed by the press, and they say, well, how did you do that? And they just go, I don't know. I just, 
I didn't think about it. I just did it. I went into that burning building and I saved that child. Or I covered the body of that person that I didn't want to get killed. They shot me instead and I survived. Or, you know, people who did, like the guy who landed the airplane on the Hudson River. I can't remember his name right now. They made a movie about him. Sully. Sully, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And they made this movie about him because he was such a hero. And when you interview him, he says, I just did what anybody would do. You know, I wasn't anything special. You know, I just seemed like the right thing to do. And and that's when you're not bogged down by fear and insecurity, those thoughts, your natural resilience or wisdom responds appropriately to falling in love, like I did with my wife, or to solving a crisis that's life and death, or when I work with healthcare professionals, how to be in the midst of the emergency room or a surgical procedure, but be lighthearted and loving and carry kind of that loose feeling. You're so present and you're so responsive and all of the training you've had, you get just whatever you need from that training library at that moment to use. Mm. You, oh, you know, I just thought about an article that I read about this. Hmm, let me look at that. Oh, that's the solution. So people, I found leaders or healthcare professionals say, I'm in the same stressful situation, but I'm more responsive to the needs of the patient. I'm a better listener. I'm the calm influence in the room rather than getting frenetic and scared like everybody else, even professionals. So when I'm operating from that I, that resilience, I'm a calming influence. And when people are calm, they, uh, can I read a story from the book? By the way, this is, this is there, the There it is. Yeah. The says, show the book. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I'm a terrible marketer. <laughs> I, at least I thought that was true. Um, there's a story that I love is Mahima. She actually just did a thing for Sid. Uh, did one of Sid's um, books uh, or talks on forgiveness. She introduced it this week. Mm. But Mahima Shreth was in charge of emergency preparedness for the country of Nepal. And um, so she tells this story, and I'll just read it here because it's really powerful. And you can also watch this on a video on my website because I did a podcast with a lot of people who were interviewed for Thriving in the Eye of the Hurricane. Um, their stories that are in this book are also their stories on, on the podcast. So anyway, so she tells this story. There was this destruction and devastation all around us after the first earthquake struck. 9,000 people were killed and thousands more were injured or left homeless. We were overwhelmed with grief and fear as we watched this beautiful country pounded into a pile of rubble. My family and I were huddled together in my home. With each tremor, we were filled with terror, anticipating the next earthquake. Between tremors, we would wait in in fear and imagine what might happen next. In contrast, my three-year-old niece would go back to playing between tremors and seemed to be enjoying having her whole family together in one place. 
Her laughter and play relieved and distracted us momentarily from our own panicky feelings. At one point, she looked at all of us and proclaimed, It's over! Can't you see it's over? Her childlike innocence and lightheartedness in the face of our stress hit me like another earthquake, a psychological one. She was being resilient in the face of danger while the rest of us were being feeling traumatized. The dormant thought that had been resting in my head for many months suddenly burst forth. We are always living in the feeling of our thinking each moment. By witnessing my niece's resilience in the face of real danger, I realized what the three principle psychology was all about. With this insight, my mind and my body became calm. From that moment on, my stress diminished and my resilience returned. I realized that the earthquake and the tremors didn't create my stress and fears. My thinking did. Since that profound moment, I have felt more energy and more clarity of thinking, and I am better able to respond to real and present dangers. Every di everybody did what they could to bring solace and help restore resilience in their communities in the weeks following the earthquake. I hosted webinars with international experts in the crisis response field and invited trainers from the UK to introduce these three principles in Nepal to help earthquake survivors source their own resilience more effectively. Many organizations, groups, and institutions such as schools, chambers of commerce, insurance companies, community hospitals, young women's leadership programs, and more have since benefited from this teaching. Mm, that's and, such a and great she's story. also won an international award of Women of the Year for her work with uh, sex trade between China and, and uh, India. Mm. Um, she's just an amazing human being, but she really is primarily a three principles teacher now. Mm. Cool. Wow. Yeah. So that's just one story. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that with us. And I'll put links in the show notes to, uh, to your website where the interviews are and also to your book as well. Thank so you. people can find those if they're looking. Um, one of the things I love about the, the eye of the hurricane metaphor is that the outer wall of all our stirred up thinking, you know, can be so distracting, you know, that sometimes it's hard to, to get into the center. And I said to you in some of the notes that I sent you that it felt, it has felt to me like um, understanding about this has sort of, has been a really distinct two-stage process. The first stage, even knowing that the eye, the quiet eye is there. And then the second part has been coming to trust it, that I can rely on it, you know, no matter what. And so I loved your book for just its emphasis on, on that, on the eye, you know, the quiet, resilient center of all of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's been really yeah. great to learn that. Yeah. It, uh, it, for me to, too, for sure, because, you know, I still get caught up in my thinking on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. We all are. Sid did. I don't know anybody who didn't get caught up in their thinking. But when you have an understanding of where, well, first of all, you, um, you have an understanding of where feelings come from. That you can't have a feeling without thought 
connecting to your consciousness to create that feeling, that perception in the moment. So if you're panicking, it looks like you're in a really dangerous place and you can't see a solution. If you recognize that in the moment, like you're a firefighter or a police officer or a politician or a teacher, whatever your role is, and you you catch it because it feels like this discomfort, and you see that it, it's not what I'm thinking about, but how I'm thinking about what I'm thinking about that's creating my experience. So it be, you see that it's coming from the inside out, your human experience, rather than the outside in. And the proof of that is that if you look at people watching a movie, being in a real crisis, all of them respond in a totally different way on a bell curve. Mm. Some people completely traumatized, immobilized to people who hardly even notice. They just go right to work. They don't even think about themselves to somewhere in between. So depending on your thinking in the moment, um, you're, you're going to um, have a different emotion and a different experience. But with an understanding of the principles, you're able to tap into that eye or that resilience because your feelings become a barometer, like a, a barometer for the storms. You know, mm -hmm. We have a cabin in Canada, and it's in a really remote area, so we have a barometer because there's no weather forecaster there. <laughs> right. but we can see when that barometer drops, we're going to get a storm. Mm -hmm. Long before you, the sun's out, the barometer's dropping. Looks like there's no, no problem coming, but when you see that barometer drop, you know to prepare. You know, get your raincoat, you know, your umbrella, uh, come on inside. And so when your feelings of anger or anxiety come up, it triggers your awareness that you're creating a thought perceptual experience from the inside. And when you're attuned to that, it helps you get perspective. Maybe to value a calm mind rather than an overreactive, fearful mind. And the more you value a calm mind, you begin to see in that eye, you get a lot of insights that you wouldn't have otherwise. You are able to have more stick to another term for resilience. You're able to um, have more energy. You sleep better. You're more responsive. You, you have more empathy. You have more connection to others. So there's many beautiful human traits that are built into this innate resilience or innate mental health that you can witness in any child. Little children who haven't yet learned to be fearful or to be self-conscious or to be um, resentful. They get over things very quickly if they are upset. They're naturally extremely curious and their learning curve is like this. Whereas when you become fearful, your learning curve becomes like this. So young children are little sponges. They learn so much in the first few years of life because they haven't yet learned to be afraid. They haven't yet learned to worry. They haven't yet learned to hold a grudge or be prejudiced or judge. 
those are those are all learned things that that create a feeling and when you use that feeling as a barometer it helps you oh don't go there joe <laughs> you know because i can still do that i'm you know this last year of our lives uh, my wife and i would and we're both 75 and suddenly having things happen with our bodies and our brains that didn't happen before and you know, it's starting to experience aging and um, and some uh, fairly serious health issues happened this year for us, all due to the fact that our house had mold and we didn't know it. It's insidious. You can't see it. Mm-hmm. But our doctor suspected it and had us tested for a variety of um, um, toxic chemicals. Because I lost a lot of weight, I didn't have any energy, my brain was foggy, and um, and so I took these microtoxin tests, as did my wife, and actually we were on, on our way to British Columbia. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> when we got the news, your uh, mold levels in your body are 500 points over normal. You can never live in that house again, she <laughs> wrote us. You must move out. You will not survive if you go back in that house. Wow. So we have to demolish our home, rebuild. We're in our early semi-retirement phase. And all of a sudden, there goes about a third of our net worth right down the drain, and the insurance covers none of it. So it was, you can imagine, economically, physically, a huge disruption in our life. And... It's been a year of that. It's just been like one thing after another. So my wife wrote this poem last week. Can I read it? Yeah, please do. Uh, she says, in tongue-in-cheek, I've had so much bad luck, it's good luck. <laughs> what is bad luck but an opportunity to sharpen our skills, the skills we were born with, the talents we didn't know we have? What is bad luck but the uncomfortable handle on the door to success, covered with mold, tarnished, but recognizable by the finest jeweler? The miner of gold reaches past the disgusting to discover what's inside. The door opens and the day is saved. Sight from within penetrates the surface of all disaster. It uncovers the wholeness of salvation that exists inside this room of peace. The architect of design lives in this hidden world, the eye, wherein lies all resource to create from the universe of knowing, answering any questions needed to build a foundation from the only existence that is true, universal love. By opening the door of bad luck, finding the peace inside, we move aside the barriers we've created and rebuild our life from the inside. The lens of destruction is no longer feared when we rest in the state of knowing that the power of life bends to bring forth a new universe every hour of every day. Mm-hmm. Residing in eternal knowing can be misunderstood and mixed with fear of seeing the truth. We have the freedom to understand that the comfort of not knowing is a state of recognition of what is to become known. Mm. 
A recognition of this powerful ingredient called love transforms what is not known into the treasure of assurance that we are here to create and be known as the power that arises from within to change our world and the world with the passion of persistence that never ends. Rely on this eternal force to give you the passion, the love, and the knowing to resurrect from within the heart and the soul of the universal consciousness. Leave behind the limited thoughts, releasing their unformed energy to float free, disengaging from misunderstanding. I will not falter in my one desire to be one in the peace of universal creation. Wow. Oh, that's beautiful. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And my wife is like her art, her passion comes through her art. She's an artist mm. and a poet. Mm. And these just, they just come out of her all whole like this. She doesn't have to edit. It's just amazing. But we all have that in a different form, like what you're doing in your podcasts is mm. a form of it. I'm sure mm. there are many others. I never thought I'd ever be a writer. I was told not to go to college because of my poor language skills. <laughs> oh, goodness. And here I, and, and, but Sid said, oh, you're going to write books and they'll be all over the world and you'll teach at universities. And I go, me? You got the wrong guy. <laughs> but it all came true. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, thank you for sharing that poem with us. That's beautiful. I'm sorry it was a little long, but I, I, it was worth hearing, I think. Yes, absolutely. I wrote down a couple of things. The architect of design was one of the phrases that I loved from there. And also the idea that there's a new universe, she said in every hour, but it's like in every moment, you know? True. Yeah. Yeah. So lovely. So we're just about coming up to running out of time, but I wanted to come back to the phrase that you use in the book, the compass of wisdom. And, and this kind of, touches on everything we've talked about so far today but how if you were to recommend for listeners how they could find this still point this eye at the center of their hurricane how would you recommend they do that well i think the first step is kind of a leap of faith um that we there are no God doesn't create any bad things. There's no no mistakes in mm -hmm. creation. And that we're no exception to that, that we have this human potential, this essence that is wise. So considering the possibility that that's true even for you, even though you might have doubted that or thought you weren't smart enough or that you were damaged goods or that you were too insecure. It doesn't matter how long you've been a chronic alcoholic or suffered from mental illness or had a horrible marriage or anything. Every human being that's still alive has the possibility of transformation and change through insight. And so, first of all, it's just kind of a, for me in the beginning, it was really just hearing that and it felt true, but it didn't, I didn't think it was true for me. Oh. I hadn't yet realized it, but it sounded true. And 
then I started getting eyes for it. So when I would have a, a thought come into my mind that was like one of those head cockers, when you go, whoa, what did that mean? Um, that sounded really true, but I, I don't understand it. That I would listen to that more. And sometimes that would be from just writing when I was troubled or this still small voice, as some would call it, is there. And if you look back on your life, in hindsight, you can see something told me not to do this, but I did it anyway. Mm. Um, and I should have listened to myself. I wasn't listening. So it's hindsight. You can see, oh, I can't believe that I took that risk to ask her out. That was unlike me, but something was so compelling to me, I couldn't help but do it. That was the compass. Mm -hmm. Something told me to go hear Sid Banks against all of my misgivings. And it was like a magnet that pulled me, like the magnet in a compass. And so for me, I can look back on my life and I can see that that, that still small voice was always guiding me, even when I ignored it. And I could see, oh, I knew that was the wrong decision. But I did it anyway. And so when you you start to have experiences of insight and this wisdom, you'll have flashbacks and see how it was always there. And that'll give you more confidence to trust it. Because when you're going into the unknown, the future, you don't know what's going to happen. But you, if you get quiet and you listen, Listen, is this the right thing for me to take this job or to call that person? Or, and if you listen inside, it'll, you'll start to recognize that feeling of truth. And the compass of truth has a feeling built into it. It's called a knowing. You've got a, like a knowing without knowing why. Mm -hmm. Just have a knowing. And... The book I'm writing, now I didn't think I'd ever write another book. I was like, okay, I'm done. This is it, last, last one. But then I, I had a dream a few months ago. I had this whole book come to me in the dream. And I woke up in the middle and I thought, oh my God, what was that? It was like a whole life review. Am I dying, I thought? You know, what's going on here? But it was like my whole life passed before me. And I realized how that compass had been guiding me all along. Mm. And so the book I'm writing, which I haven't started writing yet, but is called uh, uh, My Magic Carpet Ride. Because <laughs> it's like a magic carpet. Mm. There's no steering wheel on it. You just go wherever it takes you. And that's the compass. Yeah. And the more I understood what Sid was saying about the principles, the more I didn't, you know, it's like a kitty right. thing that yeah. you, think you, you think it's connected to the wheels, but it's really your imagination that you're turning the car. It's just an illusion. But when you trust the carpet, opportunities open up for you that you never would have dreamt of. Mm. I never thought I'd ever write a book. I never thought I'd teach at universities or travel around the world like I do. Um, 
it was just one story after another story. I, I got healed from major illnesses through the power of mind with Lyme's disease and um, knock on wood with the, the mold going, coming out of my system now. Yeah. You know, so it's just, uh, it's always there for us. And the more we understand through insight, the principles, the more trust we have, faith and hope as we go through life, that life is guiding us. This divine intelligence is guiding us each step of the way, whether we know it or not. Mm -hmm. Oh, lovely. I love that magic carpet analogy. That's such a great one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I thought, no, I'm not, I can't, no, I, I, I couldn't remember anything in my dream. So then I'm, my wife and I, we, we went out skiing this winter and we're there in a West, Best Western hotel in the middle of Nebraska somewhere. And I wake up in the middle of the night and I had the same dream again. Wow. With another download. And I thought, I got to write this down. Uh, I'll never remember any of this. And then the next thought was, you'll remember as you write. Mm, yes. So that's the compass too. You know, yeah. you don't have to try to write things down or remember them. Your wisdom will always be there. Your compass will always be with you. Mm -hmm. Guide you into the unknown. Mm -hmm. And that's what we need in these times. I'm, just last night I was watching TV and um, there was a story about how well, there's so many mass killings in our country. There's more than one per day now in America uh, with AK-47s, you know, just horrible um, violence happening. So now what's happening, they showed this basketball game where someone thought they heard a gun go off. And it spread like panic and everybody ran out of the room and, you know, it just, and it was, there was no, no gunman, nothing, mm -hmm. but just the thought of it could happen here. Mm -hmm. And so people are living in this fear. Mm -hmm. And if people could understand that their common sense and wisdom is always going to be with them to protect them and to know the right thing to do. And in the meantime, enjoy your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Love your children. Be with your friends. Don't live in fear. It's all self-generated. You don't have to do that. And that's that I wrote in another book I wrote was Fear Proof Your Life after 9-11. Mm -hmm. Because we have become so addicted to fear mm. as a culture. We still are. Mm -hmm. Now the Canadians not so much, I don't think. I don't know. <laughs> Hard to say. Depends who you talk to, I guess. It depends. Yeah, I guess it's yeah. an individual by individual thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, we've covered a lot of ground here, Joe. It's been just great. And is there anything we haven't talked about that you'd like to share before we wrap um, up? Let me see. Maybe one more story. Um, okay. Um, what? Um, I could tell a story about healing physically myself or a story of a nurse and how this helped her uh, or Mavis who worked with gangs. How about, yeah, I'd love to hear the story about healing yourself. Me? Yeah, you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Where am I here? Lime story. 
So I won't read the whole thing. Um, but when I was, um, this, this happened um, in the summer of 2017. I was at my cabin in Canada and I started experiencing uh, extreme back pain, um, sweating, um, just excruciating uh, pain in my body. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd never experienced that before. And I thought, God, do I have cancer? You know, what's going on with me? Um, and I was just, I was just, a, I was all alone. I was writing another book um, in the middle of nowhere and I'm struck with this and it just wouldn't go away. And day after day, I was just in this excruciating pain. And, um, but it felt like Lyme disease because I had had it before, but mm-hmm. I didn't see any bite. And then um, my wife says, well, look in the mirror, see if you see anything behind you. And I looked in the mirror and I could see there's a big red target on the back of my knee, yeah. behind my knee, on the back of my leg. Oh, I got Lyme disease again. Mm. So I came home, I went to, you know, took the doxycycline with the doctors recommended, but I had all this mental fog and sleeping difficulties and all this. So I went to a specialist, was referred to a specialist that worked with Lyme. And she, she's first thing she said to me, 90% of this is in the mind. You, mm-hmm. you, your mind is so important in your healing. I said, Oh yeah, I know that. I'm a psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Totally. You know, she said, but you know, here's supplements you should take and avoid being around areas where you're going to get a tick. Always check yourself, blah, blah, blah. Don't get it again. And take these supplements, etc. But I never really got well. I just felt like I was always kind of sick. Mm. Low energy instead of high energy. Not as clear mentally. So when my wife was going to Malaysia um, to study Kung Fu with a grandmaster, she said there's going to be a course on Qigong healing there. Uh, you should come along. And I said, Sure. I'd love to travel. I'll go. So we went there. Um, and um, I thought, um, there's a guy there who was a gifted Qigong healer from Switzerland. I thought, I'll, maybe I'll get an appointment with him and maybe he can help me. So um, Michael said that she would, during her Kung Fu course, she said, uh, Andrew is going to... Um, be with us. Why don't you join us for lunch? You can ask him. And so I went to Chinatown where they were going and I caught up with them and uh, I saw Andrew and she said, why don't you ask Andrew? So uh, I was hoping to meet Andrew who was a a teacher of Qigong and a well-known healer from Switzerland. As luck would have it, I caught up with Andrew on the busy streets of Penang. Could I set up a time to meet with you for a session regarding my illness? I said, let's just do it right now. I said, now, here on the busy streets of Chinatown? Well, why not? I reluctantly agreed. So what's the problem, he said. Well, last summer I got Lyme disease. Stop right there, he said. Don't ever say you have Lyme disease if you ever want to be completely well. Puzzled, I tried to correct him and telling him, but I had the symptoms long before I realized I had Lyme. With an absolute sense of knowing, he repeated what he said earlier. I understand the power of mind in healing and its relationship to illness and mental health, I said. 
I've written several books on this topic. I believe in what you're saying. No, you don't. You just think you do. <laughs> Every time you say, I'm sick with Lyme, you send all the beliefs and thoughts that you have about the illness to every cell of your body. Your body and mind are one. Well, I know that, but you don't believe me. Or no, he says, do you believe me? Yes, I do. I think I do. No, you don't. I can see it in your face. If you don't change your thinking about your illness, your body's natural capacity to heal will be interrupted by your sending signals of being sick to the body. You don't believe me except intellectually. I knew he was right, and I felt humbled by his resolve and certainty. He wasn't let, going to let me off the hook. At that moment, I saw it for the first time. He smiled. Now you believe me. Mm. How do you know that? I can see it in your face. Mm. I felt something lift from my whole body. All the invisible worry and thinking was falling away. My mind swirled as it had... Whoops. When I first met Sid Banks, I knew Andrew was right, but my brain kept trying to understand what had just happened. So should we set up a, a session, I said? Why? We just had it. That was it? But we only talked for a few minutes, at most, out here on the busy, noisy streets of Chinatown. You got it. You're done. Well, at least can I pay you your fee? That's okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> the next day, I woke up early, feeling totally awake in a way I hadn't in many months, perhaps years. My head was clear, and I had all this energy. I decided to go down to the gym and work out, and then go for a swim. I doubled my weights from the previous day with ease. I went for a swim and felt like I could swim forever. I didn't know what had happened, but I was grateful. When I walked into my friend's apartment, she stared. What happened to you? You look 10 years younger. I told her about my conversation with Andrew the day before. Blake and I have been so worried about you, Joe. You had, a, you had aged so much, not like before. You had always seemed so youthful for your age. You were our inspiration. Andrew, the healer, had never heard of the principles of mind, thought, and consciousness, as discovered by Sid Banks, but he obviously had a deep understanding of mind. Wow. Oh, that's incredible. And so since then, have you had any symptoms at all? Or I've not had any symptoms since. Wow. Not of Lyme. Other, other. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's incredible. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. Well, thank you for your interview. It was great to meet you, Alexandra. Lovely to meet you as well. And why don't you tell uh, the listeners where they can find out more about you and your work and your books? Yeah, so my books are all on Amazon. You can order them there in Kindle and, you know, book form or um, uh, audio. Uh, some of them are on Audible. This this book is on, is on Audible. Great. Um, and then if you go to my website, joebaileyandassociates.com, you can see all the interviews and podcasts of my past podcasts about the book and the people in the book um, and just lots of other resources of lots of other good three principles teachers and programs and um, other books that have been written about Sid's wonderful discovery of the three principles. Great. Okay. Well, I will put a, a link to that, to those things as well. 
in the show notes. So thanks again, Joe. It's just been a delight to chat with you. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you found the show helpful and uplifting. You'll find all the backlist episodes and show notes at unbrokenpodcast.com. If you'd like to connect, go to alexandraamore.com forward slash connect. I'll see you next time.